Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge. My attempts to understand why the simple things going on around me always turn out to be more complex than they seem. I'm Peter Bruce and I make this podcast for the Financial Mail and you can also find it on the Spotify and Apple podcast platforms. I hope you found them and are listening and are enjoying what you hear. This edition sees the return of a recent guest, an important guy, because in my experience there are so few of him around. He's an economic historian. He doesn't track current policy much, but he can tell you what happened the last time something like it was attempted. So welcome back, Keith Breckenridge, a professor in the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research and one of the top economic historians in the country. Keith emailed me last week to draw my attention to what seemed like an extraordinary book that tries to explain how vast corruption in China and that country's extraordinary economic growth might be explained. We know a lot about corruption in South Africa, and conventional wisdom would tell us that corruption prevents growth or somehow damages it. So how do you explain China? In her book, China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption, University of Michigan politics professor Yuan Ang does something just great. She breaks down corruption into a series of types of species, most of which we might recognize, but one of which may actually be useful, a little bit perhaps like cartels were once thought to be. Thanks for the tip-off and thanks for joining me. What does Ang's book tell us that we don't already know about corruption? Oh, thank you, Peter. Thanks very much for the introduction. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, I mean, there are many things. The, the, the first is this point that you just made about uh, breaking corruption up into these four different types. Um, so the, you know, the ones we're familiar with are what she would call you know, grand larceny or grand theft, there's petty theft, so that would be the post office official helping themselves to your, your not that that ever happens, uh, helping themselves to your, the contents of your mail. Uh, and then there is what she calls speed up money, and that's when you're paying an official to do their job, the job they're supposed to be doing, but which for whatever reason they do very slowly. We're also, I think, familiar with that in South Africa. And then the final one is what she calls access money, and these are the big payments that are typical uh, in, in actually most societies, almost all political orders find a way for the people who hold political power to extract payments as part of the decision-making process. And that's the, the heart of this book. She shows how access money is the form of corruption in China that's really, all the other forms have been policed away um, over the last 20 years. And it's access money that's remained in, in place. Uh, the book is also partly about the dangers of the Xi campaigns against access money. So she's also warning that there's a new, if you like, temperature, a new political uh, mood in China in the context of a really pervasive and ongoing campaigns against these kinds of access payments. So that breaking up of corruption to, into four separate types uh, and, the, and the, what happens is you end up with a different kind of worldview of corruption because access payments are actually very common as the 
as the Greensill story in Britain shows us, and um, they're common in the United States, especially where people cycle in and out of government between the lobbying agencies and the big banks. Um, and they, that's really been key to how the allocation of, of resources is, is actually made in those societies. How, how would it work in China, though? I mean, how would, how does, so I can understand the revolving door in the, in the States and Greensill in, in, um, in the UK um, has been very embarrassing, I presume, for people like, um, you know, form, a former prime minister, um, uh, who, all of whom seem to pay this, this man who started the bank. He's Australian, I think. Um, uh, vast amounts of money, uh, some of which bounce back, I suppose, to the Tory party, um, uh, to, uh, yeah, for, for, so that he could get access uh, to the things that he needed. But what does the Chinese version of that look like? And what might our version of that look like? Well, the version that sh she's looking at is, is how this plays out in local government. And these local governments are, in fact, of course, really enormous governments. They're the local government in China, the province uh, is, you know, the size of a, a large uh, OECD state. So she's looking at how the the, the, the the political party figures who control provinces and cities, large cities of sort of 10 million people, are able to extract investments from payments from, from property developers. That's the core of the work that she's interested in. But one of the things that she concludes is that this has helped China grow. Yes, absolutely. So that's the big, the core of the mystery. I mean, the fact that China's grown. That's the paradox. Yeah, you know, 10% per annum, you know, over the, over the last 30 years is the fundamental, it's really the big economic problem that the rest of the world is trying to make sense of. And it's the same problem that she's interested in. She wants to try and understand why it's, why that's happened. Uh, and she's, she's interested to have a go at or, or disagree with the kind of the, what we could call the kind of uh, establishment argument. So the establishment argument really is that they have had uh, this distinctively capable Confucian bureaucracy, so which was which is really driven by meritocracy. Uh, they had sort of you know 1500 years ago an examination-based state, and so the idea is everybody in China has done a PhD in operations research, and they are all kind of you know academically much cleverer than everybody else. And, and the core of her argument is she doesn't say that that's not it's not it's not important. But what she's she's arguing instead is that there is a set of incentives, and those incentives are structured in a way that really really drives growth, uh, in a, and in a way that's completely different in other places. So the model in South Africa is much more it's about redistribution, but it's very it has almost no growth benefits. We we have a sort of dysfunctional corruption rather than yeah ours is mostly it's a it's actually I would say retards growth it it has long term damaging effects on companies uh, and what she shows is that uh, the form it's partly these access payments but a much bigger part of this is how the whole bureaucracy in China is broken down into these local government units that are actually competing with each other, the provinces compete and the towns compete within the provinces. And then what happens is that the officials, they get about a quarter of their salary in a fixed payment. And three quarters of it is in what we would call goodies. These are housing benefits, car, education allowance, all sorts of things. And those are all funded through indirect taxes that are levied at the local government level. 
So there's, you have a kind of alliance between the rent seekers and the officials in, in driving the development of businesses in, at, the, at the local level. And that's, this, that's been the kind of a rocket fuel of, this, of the Chinese economy. And it's the really important insight in this book is that she finds the, you know, this isn't the, the normal view of bureaucracy at all. This is a bureaucracy that's very heavily uh, motivated by what we call the success of local businesses. Everything, you know, unlike we have this GEPF, this sort of big cloud in the sky that pays people's pensions regardless of what happens in, the, in their work. In the case of the Chinese bureaucracy, if people fail, they lose everything. You know, they, they, the, if, the comp if the town stops basically working, the officials collapse the whole project yeah. of, of earning their salaries for pieces. She, she's interesting. I mean, I, I read a review that you sent me from the, the books published, I think, by the London School of Economics. Um, and I read a review, and, she, and the review describing what she's doing um, is it talks about um, uh, access, it talks about corruption being a sort of a drug, different drugs having different effects on, on the body. Um, she talks about access money as like a sort of a steroid or performance-enhancing drug in sport. It facilitates growth by allowing large corporations to win public contracts, deregulate markets, etc. Access money is access to the decision makers, and these in turn grant access to more business opportunities. This type of corruption enhances economic growth by increasing investments but taxes the social body with rising inequality. Just come back to South Africa for a, mo a moment. I mean, what, what, what can we usefully learn from this book? Um, the two, you know, she's very careful to say that there isn't a model yeah. that can be kind of, you know, replicated. We can't go to China and learn what they've done and say that it would apply in other places. But the thing that she does stress is that people need to be, they need to be brave enough to innovate around the central model of what people, how people think economies should function. So that's the, the core. We should be looking at what we've got and we should be thinking about designing in particular a set of incentives that will produce better outcomes. The core of the argument is this, and it is an accident. They fell onto these incentives because they had no money. You know, the Chinese Communist Party in 1985 it was. It had no resources, so it couldn't pay salaries. It couldn't offer people, you know, significant pensions. It had to offer kind of, if you like, a revenue sharing uh, a model to these local officials, and and literally hold out the promise to them that if they did the work properly, that they would they would earn more in the future. So there's a kind of deferment built into the model. It's okay. To, um, come come back to come back to South Africa. Come to my my hometown. I grew up in Amtata. Um I'm taught is not this, the quaint little village that it used to be, um, but it could, in in a way, if it was run properly, by incentivized people, incentivized by whatever, um, be quite a wealthy quite a wealthy town. The population has grown from twelve thousand or so to, you know, probably more than a million uh, or close to a million, and there's a lot of money spent in Amtata that isn't captured. I mean, it's all cash. It's a cash economy. Um, how how would one what is it about what is it about the way we are structured that prevents us from not from copying the chinese but pre prevents us from you know taking what we've got 
and giving it that steroid injection. So, the, you know, I, I'm wary of making suggestions about what we should do, but so let me just reconstruct what she says has happened and then we can think about how it might work here. So the core of, the, of her argument is that uh, local government officials are paid out of local revenues, and that includes in particular VAT. So VAT is, is a local government tax. It doesn't go to Pretoria. It would go, the VAT that Mtata raised would be based, would become the kind of main revenue source um, in, the, in the municipality. Uh, and, you know, that then creates this, this kind of driver of the whole bureaucracy working to try and ensure that businesses are attracted to the town and that the, the businesses do well. Um, and that ultimately that they survive and the infrastructure works to make these businesses stronger. Uh, I would say that's, that's some version of that is what we need. We have to have a, a situation where officials basically are, they're rewarded for the work, they're paid for getting their jobs done. And we can't keep paying people uh, salaries when the institutions that they're supposed to be looking for after are falling to pieces and the, essentially the people who pay the price for that are, are usually the, the workers, the people who don't have access to the GEPF, the Government Employees, the, uh, Employees Pension Fund, because the Pension Fund acts as a kind of a, a safety net for all the higher level of officials in South Africa. And that's what she says she's describing in, in China does not exist. You know, these, these Chinese officials basically are dependent on the, the prosperity, the profitability of, the, of their particular government enterprise. And so they work very hard to make it function. I would be careful about saying, let's try and replicate everything she's described in this book. But I do think we can, we can step away from it and ask ourselves, what are we incentivizing people to do in South Africa? And by and large, the, the big incentives are all in there are equity agreements that are handed out as part of our BEE deals. I think that's how we have to be, you know, honest. That's where the the real goodies lie in our economy. When you say that, you mean you mean black empowerment deals, or, or typically the deals are outside of the performance of the state. Let's put it. Let's say it like put it like that. So that the rewards are all for things that you can get that have nothing to do really with your with your function in the bureaucracy. You might become a director. In one of the companies that you're supposed to be regulating, that's a very common model all over the, you know, in the, yeah. in, the in the in the capitalist world. But what what she's describing is something much closer um, to a kind of um, a bonus system that, that that actually rewards officials for doing their their, their doing jobs their job. properly. This we, we before we went on air, we were talking about party financing. The, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, if you compare it, say, with the ANC here, um, it doesn't, it, does it not fund its, I don't know how the Chinese system works at all. I mean, do all Chinese, uh, is it able simply to tax, is there a party tax on the whole country? or Because left-wing parties like the Chinese Communist Party or the, or, or, or the ANC almost have to be corrupted or corruptible or, or, or get corrupt money. Because their constituents don't, or their members don't have money to pay membership fees. So they yeah. have to invent ways to get it. Um, yeah. You know, this is a difficult problem. This is not something she describes in this book, and it's not something I've read up much about. I, I think we, you know, in, you can see from a, some distance that the, the party is enormously wealthy now um, and has, you know, it has a, 
it is literally a parallel state with its own salary body and its own committees and commissions making decisions about you know who gets who gets promoted and who gets fired and yeah. driven out of the party. Um, it's definitely not functioning at all like the conventional left social democratic or, or communist parties where you know you're required on some you're required to find a, a, a fairy godfather who's going to yeah. look after the party and I get his get his yeah. you know whatever i think i read somewhere that the central committee of the party had over a hundred billionaire dollar billionaires um on it probably and that probably was an under um an underestimation what are the characteristics i mean so she she takes um, to develop this sort of um, uh, methodology of measuring or, or, or differentiating between kinds of corruption, she looks at a whole lot of countries, doesn't she? Yeah, um, she does. And w- was there anything in the other countries that you saw that sort of kind of rang true or you thought, oh, that's interesting? And, and you know, I mean, how does, um, I don't know whether Brazil was one of them, um, but there must be a tendency for, for when we're talking about access money corruption, it must be for big economies. I mean, things happen in economies like the US and China and Brazil and India that are just impossible in smaller countries with with smaller markets and smaller populations and smaller land masses. Um, are, there, are there characteristics of the Chinese model? Did she find them anywhere else? So she finds access money just about everywhere, um, you know, and it takes many different forms. So the way she asks this, these questions, she doesn't. She she provides. She gives people a vignette. She says, you know, what would what are these circumstances common in the place in which you work? So do you need to employ somebody um, who was previously in the regulator? As, as a way of kind of building your relationship with the state. So you can ask that as a vignette and you get a yes answer on, and no, she doesn't say yes, no. She asks for how common is this on a scale of one to five? And yeah. so what she ends up with is very high frequencies for that kind of access payment. So that would be, you know, you either, uh, you're Goldman Sachs and you want to make sure that you get the regulation you want. So the best way of doing that is to hire people who bring people into Goldman Sachs who had been previously working in the, the New York branch of the Federal Reserve. Or in, in, it's clear this happens in just about all modern economies. So people can go from, they can take their insider regulators information and, and kind of lever, leverage that into a really well-paid position. In the company, in one of the companies, and that's what Cameron did in the Greensill case. Is he yeah. he took his you know his prestige and insider contacts yeah. in the British state, and he took he put them into equity in the Greensill, imagining he was going to be as enormously wealthy. I imagine. But I wonder, Keith, whether 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 anything even remotely like that is possible here. You know, because what we have instead of passing in and out of government, um, either as as a politician or an official. What happens is that with every change of presidency here in the ANC, everybody's cleared out um, and and almost banished. You know, nobody ever nobody gets back in. Um, you can see some politicians, people like Trevor Manuel, become chairman of uh, uh, of mutual, uh, and one or two other people will get you know directorships. Tito Mbaweni, when he was 
finished at the bank, sat on a couple of boards. Um, uh, but there's nothing really systematic about it. I mean, when you are out of politics, you are reckoned to have eaten your share, I suppose, or eat of power or money or whatever, and you're gone, you know. And um, we have a, we, we've managed, in a way, to cock up corruption um, completely. You know, we're, we're with a little bit more thought and guile. It might have been more useful to us. Yeah, I think we do need to figure out a way to decentralize the relationship between firms and and politicians. Um, and we keep trying to centralize things, thinking that will help us. And what it's doing is it's it's actually it's you know it's kind of breaking the way in which the state functions at the at the local government level so and and it's it's and south africans have this kind of anathema around uh, corruption and one of the reasons for that is because we have these enormous corporations in which you know when Rhodes first set up the british south africa company he pretty much went around the cape trying to figure out who the figures were that he needed to buy off and he offered them equity in the company and you know they kept they kept quiet about what he was up to north of the Limpopo. And I think there is that model that, you know, that it's the it's the deal at the very top that that ultimately gets to, to make the decisions about how the economy is going to function. And the problem with that is that we've, we've lost mechanisms for keeping all the other people actually busy properly and getting them to do their work. So, and, and I think this can be done. I don't think it has to be done as a, you know, a bag of, Brown paper bag full of cash. Yeah, I think you can you can offer people essentially incentives and performance incentives so that they get something out of doing their jobs properly. Well, you know, as as the review that I read saying, and I want to come back to China today. The review says corruption in China's case is handled through a profit sharing arrangement. The arrangement turns the bureaucracy into sort of stationary bandits, is the term used, um, rather than roving bandits. Because of this, um, the Chinese bureaucracy is invested in in development, and they have a stake in attracting investment by not scaring off business opportunities. And um, if you stop that, this is um, we're just venturing, just playing with the with the thought. Um, Xi Jinping um, is going on a strong anti-corruption drive. He kills you. You get you get shot. You know, or if you caught acting corruptly in China now, what what is the likely effect of that going to be? What does he mean? Does he mean it, or does he understand what he's sitting on? I don't think there's any question he means it. And one of the things she shows is how extensive. You know, she's talking about fifty thousand people who've been already successfully prosecuted. I mean, one of the things that's really striking about the Chinese political order is how quick these these the you know, prosecutions are so if if you're charged with corruption the the whole process is over three months later you're in prison um it doesn't take any time at all there's no real because the, the legal it's not that they don't have a legal system but it's a legal system geared towards basically supporting and bolstering the authority of the of the, of the state um and Aang is very worried about what this will mean in in the long run um, but she's also making an argument, she's comparing, this is this comparison between what she calls the Gilded Age 
and the progressive era. So she's comparing, if you like, the, t the period of the uh, the younger, the J.P. Morgan, the son, uh, or, or the you know the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, when you have really had robber baron uh, capitalism in the United States. That's yeah. really after the Civil War, 1865, and it begins to unravel in 1895 when the, the reformers, the progressives, begin to take, and those usually associated with Teddy Roosevelt, when the American state begins to get a grip on these um, these what people call trusts. And this, and so she's her, she's implying that the Chinese economy is going through a, a moment of reform like that, um, and that it may well be good for them. It may be a good thing that they can get, you know, essentially police these kind of access payments that have otherwise been common. But she's also worried about how you know how you get selected for prosecution, uh, and she shows that the key determinant of whether you get prosecuted or not is whether your protector. So all Chinese you yeah, know, significant yeah. political figures have a, have a patron higher up the food chain. And what determines whether you get convicted of corruption or not is whether your patron has been has fallen from grace at the top, at the Politburo or yeah. above the Politburo. And that cascades down through the through the Communist Party, taking out these uh, local government yeah. figures who who've been you know successful and she's obviously very worried about what that will do in the long run to decision making processes in china but you could see that it's an interesting she's suggesting it could go either way you could have a kind of progressive era moment this is you know probably the most popular figure in the united states is is franklin delano roosevelt in that progressive period in which somebody you know literally manages to to use clean government but also kind of drive towards uh, equality towards redistribution to make the system actually yeah. work, work better for ordinary people. Is it, is it just a fact of life, Keith, in, of economic life, that the growth of middle classes or the growth of wealth is messy and untidy and unsightly and um, corrupt uh, in general around the world? I mean, we've seen China come from nothing you know, to what it is today. And as you talk about the robber barons in the in the US in the late 1800s, I mean, um, is it is this what it, you know, is this what is this what happens when you start expanding or thinking big, you know, we, we, we now have cottoned on in South Africa to the possibility that infrastructure and big infrastructure spend not happening, but you know, in theory, um, uh, there are fortunes to be made out there. If they, you know, if they, if they spend all the money that they say they're going to make, that they say they're going to spend, it does. That, is it? Is it just something you just basically have to do, put up with? Is that some of this wealth creation is going to be corrupt? Well, I don't think there's any question that it's definitely true that the it's it's messy and morally. You know, the best you can say is it's morally dubious. So there, there have been many, many examples of this where elites, you know, have managed to take the South Sea bubble, for example, kind of speculative moments and turn them into um, long-term prosperity for large numbers of people. Um, the best example is probably the way the Korean War and the Vietnam War drove prosperity in California. You know, those... The three big wars, the, the Second World War, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War really made California into this kind of boom economy. Huh. Um, that, 
we don't have anything like that. And one of the problems, that, unlike the Chinese, we, we are very happy and contented in many respects. We've got an unhappy, all of our dangers are in the past. You know, we believe that's the thing we really have to be focused on fixing is the history. And we don't have a feeling about any real urgency that we, that we must be careful about, you know, Mozambique or in Angola or somebody else. So, and I think that's the, the, the in all these other cases, the, the some significant outside threat has been the, the thing that's kept the, the kind of driver um, of, of investment and prosperity. It's by, by themselves, I don't think we can, there are any good examples of, um, you know, kind of natural middle-class prosperity developing without, so we, without... Basically, what we need to do is encourage someone to invite us. We, um, need a, we need a much stronger sense of urgency and danger, I'm afraid, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave it there. And, and thanks, Keith Breckenridge, for joining me here again and for all your effort and for your knowledge. The book we've been talking about is called China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption by Yan Yan Ang and published by the London School of Economics. I hope we'll be hearing from Prof. Breckenridge more often. I love economic history and the older I get, the less interested I find I am in the future and the more I want to know about the world I was born into. In fact, what were South African lives like during the Korean War when I was born? That's a question for another day. Thanks so much for listening. And you'll be hearing from me again soon. Bye.